So the week of Thanksgiving is upon us. How many of you are excited about Thanksgiving? Let me see your hands. All right, that's wonderful. You all will enjoy the evening tonight then. If not, then just smile and act like you're enjoying the evening tonight. So we are safely past Halloween. We are entering into the week of Thanksgiving. Most of us have more Christmas movies clogging up our DVRs than what we will ever be able to watch in a lifetime right now. This just happens to be probably my favorite time of the year. There's frost on the ground, primarily in other cities. <laughs> you know, seasonal snow flurries hitting the windows, primarily in other cities. I've noticed in southwest Georgia that fall is marked by the gnats saying, I'll give you all a week to regroup and we'll be right back. So that's kind of um, this time of year for us. But anyway, I love the fall of the year. I love the Thanksgiving season. Um, but it's also a very weird time of the year. And I say it's weird in the sense that a lot of people acquire what I could only refer to as temporary amnesia during this period of time. Now, feel free to test my theories this next week. But here's what I mean by that. Social media posts will be filled with families and friends and turkey dinners and celebrations and well wishes to the world of love and happiness and goodness and all of that wonderful stuff. But if you happen to scroll down like a week or two in people's feed or maybe a month or two back, you'd almost think somebody hacked the person's accounts. Because for 11 months out of the year, a lot of times Mr. Grumble Pants is tearing up the keyboards and then all of a sudden there's this time right at Thanksgiving where all of a sudden people become incredibly grateful and thankful. And it kind of brings to mind a question and that is, why is it that we are hard pressed to be grateful year round? Why do we spend a lot of our year grumbling and complaining and and talking about everything that's negative in the world, and all of a sudden there's like a three or four day period of time when our eyes are open and we're like, wow, we're grateful, we're blessed, we're happy, we have abundance in many of our homes. So with all of the blessings that we enjoy, and we do enjoy a lot of those, how can we make every part of the year, day after day, a time that we walk in gratefulness, walk in thankfulness, so tonight, we're actually going to enter into a parable in which Jesus shows the transition from gratefulness to grumbling. And what happens? What's the trigger point that moves somebody from gratefulness to grumbling? So I invite you to go with me in your Bibles today to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 20. Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 20. I'm going to be in verses 1 through 16. I am not going to read the text in advance, but I do want you to hold your place there because I'm going to constantly be going back in, referring to different points along the way in this particular text. But I want you to look at the text. We're speaking and teaching this evening on the question, why do we struggle with gratefulness? So let's go to God in prayer as we jump into this text. Heavenly Father, we ask this evening that you would allow our hearts and our minds to be so focused on you that, Lord, your word comes alive in a way that, that causes us to stop and to reflect and to think. God, help us to understand how it is that we can walk in gratefulness 365 days out of the year. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So the question is, why do we struggle with gratefulness? And we are going to answer that from a parable that Jesus gives us. So here's our key truth for this evening, and that is we grumble when we ignore God's grace and focus on our view of fairness. We grumble when we ignore God's grace and we focus on our view of fairness. Now, I want to put that particular statement into context. So if your Bibles are open, look at what it says in verse number one of chapter 20. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like, stop right there. That's your context. Everything that he's about to be describing is flowing out of a kingdom understanding. That is everything that we're reading. It is going to be teaching kingdom values and kingdom principles. Every single Christian, every born-again believer, everyone who has placed faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they have entered into and are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So think about it like this. Whenever a person is born, physically born in the United States, they are now referred to as a United States citizen. In the same way, when somebody is born again into the kingdom of heaven, they are now kingdom citizens. So there are certain laws, there are values, there are principles that define and govern God's kingdom. And in fact, Jesus says things like this about his kingdom. He says things like, the last shall be first, the meek will inherit the earth, it's better to give than to receive, love your enemies, pray for those who spitefully use you, when he defines the kingdom, it seems to be the exact opposite of everything that we live here on earth. It's counterintuitive in many ways to how we function and live. And this is his kingdom. So as we study this text tonight, I want you to remember everything he's describing here is in the context of the kingdom. And he is setting up a comparison between earthly values and kingdom values and he is bringing us to this question. Here's the question he wants to get us to. And that is, what happens when my values don't reflect kingdom values? That's what he's moving us towards in this story. What happens when my values do not reflect kingdom values? So here's what's happening in this particular story. There is a landowner who owns a huge vineyard and he needs a lot of workers. It's time of harvest and he needs a lot of people to come in and bring in the harvest. The time is of the essence. So to get this crop in, he is willing to hire a lot of workers and he is willing to pay them extremely well. There's two things that this particular vineyard owner has in abundance. He has a lot of work and apparently he's also got a lot of money. So the landowner goes into the marketplace in order to find some workers based on verse number three. The marketplace was where unemployed would gather together in hopes of getting work for that day. An equivalent might be a union hall today, or maybe it might be out in the parking lot of a home improvement center. It's basically a place where people who are wanting to work, they're going to gather and others might come by and say, I can hire you on for that day. That's kind of the scene that we have here. Now think of it like this. On their own, these workers had nothing that they could do. They were willing, but they're idle. Without a job, their needs would go unmet. Unless someone like that landowner would come by and hire them and bring them into their vineyard, into their work, many times their needs would not be met. So these unemployed workers are now divided into five groups in this particular story. 
There's the first crowd that comes in at 6 a.m. And there's a lot that could be said about that 6 a.m. crowd. They are up early. They are ready to work. They're showing up at the right place. In fact, according to this text, they negotiated a really good contract. They were going to get paid a denarii for that particular day. That was a good day's wage, hired at 6 a.m. in the morning. But then according to this, there's another group that's hired at 9 a.m. And that particular group was promised by the landowner that he would give them whatever is fair. That's going to be very important in just a few moments. There was no contract that was negotiated. They were willing to trust the landowner to do what was fair on their behalf. So they're hired and they go out to the fields. Then there's another group that's hired at 12 p.m. Same as what happened with the 9 a.m. crowd. Another crowd is then hired at 3 p.m. Another crowd is hired at 5 p.m. and they only worked one hour for that day. So there's five different groups hired at different times. Four of those did not have a negotiated contract. They were to trust the fairness and trust the character of the landowner. The first group, the 6 a.m. crowd, had the contract, and this is what they were contracted out for for the day. So it's important for us to remember something else about this landowner. Not only did the landowner have a lot of money and a lot of work, but apparently had a lot of compassion. He didn't have to hire the 9 a.m., the 12 p.m., the 3 p.m., or the 5 p.m. crowd. He could have just as easily said, nope, I'm going to get a full day's work out of everybody. And yet he still hired this group anyway. So those are your five groups. When all the work was done for the day, the landowner called the different groups in to give them their pay, found in verse number 8. He brought in the ones who were hired last, the 5 p.m. crowd. They worked for one hour, and he gave them a Daenerys. He, he gave them an entire full day's wage for one hour. Now, I bet everybody who was in that 5 p.m. crowd was like, this is the best boss I've ever had in my life. Like one hour's work, this is incredible. And then the 3 p.m. crowd came, and they got paid the same thing. They're praising the Lord. They're excited. The 12 p.m. crowd comes in. They get paid the same thing. The 9 a.m. crowd comes in. Everybody is happy, and everybody is grateful. And then he gets to the 6 a.m. crowd. That's the only crowd who had a contract. The others were to work by faith. Beep, 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 beep. Work by faith. That's important here. They're negotiated in faith. So the five crowds come through. It's now the early morning 6 a.m. crowd. And if the 5 p.m. crowd got paid a Daenerys for one hour, and this group worked 12 hours, it's easy in their mind to think, oh, I'm about to make some bank today. It's going to be good. I, I'm, I, surely I am going to be getting more than the 5 p.m. crowd. I've labored. I've worked. I've been in the fields. I've given more effort. I've done more than everybody else. They're excited. And here's what happens. They get paid the exact same thing as the rest. And at that point, they got upset. In fact, at this point, we can understand why they get upset. If you've ever worked hard, 
and you felt like somebody else didn't do half the work and they got compensated for more, you understand what this crowd's going through. You can feel what they're going through. There's a Greek word for what they're going through, ticked. It means they're angry. They're upset. Okay, so verse number 11 is when Mr. Grumblepants makes his first appearance. Now, up until this point, remember, everybody's grateful. All five groups of workers, they were grateful because the landowner gave them a job for the day. Life is good. And then in verse number 11, it says, when they received it, speaking of that Daenerys for their work, they grumbled at the landowner. You can understand the tension. If you work hard, if you sacrifice, if you get the job done, if you, you keep your part of the bargain and somebody weasels their way in at the last moment, they get the same thing. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. And verse number 12 shows the essence of their argument. These last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. The phrase in the middle, it captures their concern. You have made them equal to us. Their complaint is one of comparison. They're not complaining against the other workers. They're complaining against the landowner. They're mad because his generosity has clashed with their sense of fairness. But remember, the landowner was the one who hired them when they didn't have work, the landowner was the one who paid them a fair day's wage. It was the landowner who gave them an ability to provide for their family. He kept his word. So why are they upset? Well, these words describe why they're upset. Comparison. I did more than someone else. Fairness. I deserve more than someone else. And envy. I want more than someone else. It's a parable that is setting up comparison. Now, here's just a little secret. Just tuck it away back in your mental bank. And that is, you feel what you dwell on. You feel what you dwell on. So 2 Corinthians 10.5, it tells us, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. As we entertain certain thoughts, as we contemplate our ideas of fairness, as we let seeds of envy take root in our life, it's not long before gratefulness is replaced with grumbling. Now I want you to look at our key truth once again. We grumble when we ignore God's grace and we focus on our view of fairness. So here's the question I want to ask you. Do you think the 6 a.m. workers were grateful in the morning when they got their job? Yes, absolutely. They're, they're grateful because at that time, they, they have a way to provide. There was a fair day's wage. They got what they were asking for. So if you're wondering, by chance, if there might be some grumbling tendencies inside you, I'm going to give you three traits to come along with grumbling. First, grumblers are never content with what they possess. If the issue is money, the grumbler never has enough. If the issue is a house, somebody else has a nicer one. If it's a job, somebody has a better one. Grumbling 
and a lack of contentment go hand in hand. A second piece on that is grumblers have an excuse for everything. This cracks me up. So let's think about it like this. Let's say a grumbler's car is breaking down. And they're telling you like all week long, like my car's breaking down, it's got car issues, and, and you're just wanting to help. You're trying to be a good friend. And you're like, well, why don't you go buy a new one? And their response is, have you seen the interest rates these days? I'm not going to do that. And they just keep grumbling. So the next day you say, well, have you thought about getting a used car? And their response is, why would I want to buy somebody else's problems? And they just keep on grumbling. And like, okay, we'll go again. So then the next day you say, have you thought about fixing your car? And they're like, why would I throw good money after bad money? And they keep on grumbling. <laughs> the issue is there's always another excuse. The grumbler, it's not as much about solving the problem as extending the complaint. People have identity sometimes that has now been caught up within their grumbling. Here's another one. Grumblers believe life is rigged against them. They see people, systems, government, society, karma, luck, God himself, all being against them. Failure in their mind is imminent. If you ask the person, is the glass half full or half empty? They'll say, I don't know which one it is, but I guarantee you it's polluted water. <laughs> the system's always going to be against them. Now, let me pause here. Are there things in this life that are unfair? Yes. In fact, any thought of fairness in our world went out the window in the Garden of Eden. The moment sin enters the equation, it destroys everything around it. Does it mean that we stop working in order to try to do what is better and good for those that are around us? Not a bit. We, we keep working, we keep serving, we keep helping. We want things to be a good environment for everyone. But at the end of the day, there's still going to be issues in which life will just simply seem unfair. So let's wrap this story up. On one level, it is easy to sympathize with the workers because we see ourselves in the 6 a.m. crowd. We see ourselves as many times those who have worked hard, those who have put in the extra time and yet not been given credit for what's happened. Now, even if you don't see yourself in the 6 a.m. crowd, you kind of find yourself rooting for the 6 a.m. crowd. You almost find yourself saying, like, you need to tell your boss what's up. You need to stand up for yourself. And listen, and Jesus knew that's exactly what we would do. He knew that we would see ourselves in that position. He's showing us the root cause of much of our grumbling. Just the word envy. Verse 15. Or has your eye, or is your eye envious because I'm generous? In this parable, God is the landowner and we're the workers. God points to our envy, and he also shows us the direction in which our envy is going. It's directed towards him. Grumbling is a symptom that comes with envy. We're mad at God many times because of how he's treated us and how we think he needs to treat others. We see ourselves as the 6 a.m. crowd that has worked hard 
that's labored long, that's put in the extra effort. And yet, God sees us as the 5 p.m. crowd who we had nothing to offer outside of his grace coming for us. Had it not been for him stepping in when he did, we'd all be troubled. Had he not provided for us, we could have never provided for ourselves. We see ourselves at one point and God sees us at another. God's generosity of grace has nothing to do with the proportion of our work. It has everything to do with his goodness and his character. We didn't negotiate a contract when we entered a relationship with God. Instead, we trusted in the character of the landowner that he would do for us what was good, what was right, what was fair. Our grumbling often reflects a distortion of our reality. We grumble because many times we overestimate our own importance and we underestimate the depths of God's grace that's been shown to us. This is one of those parables that is intended to cause us to stop and to reflect on everything that God has done on our behalf. Where did the landowner find us? Think about that for just a moment. Where did God find you? Where did God find me? If you want me to get you started on that path, here's a few of those things. We were lost, sinful, hopeless, broken, confused, alone, clinging to self-sufficiency, grasping for a sense of control, many times fearful about the future, caught in cycles of sin, desperate for life. When God found us, he lavished his grace upon us. He blessed us in ways that were never in proportion to our work, what we have done or what we could ever do. He has blessed us far above and beyond anything that we could ask or think. So here's our key truth again. We grumble when we ignore God's grace and we focus on our view of fairness. So what's the cure? If maybe you've seen that you've got grumbling that's in your heart somewhere, I'm going to give you several pieces here. First, thank God for his generosity and grace. There is nothing that will turn, turn your perspective on where you are in life faster than pausing to thank God for his blessings in your life. Many times that's the way I start my prayer time in the morning. I don't know, you all might be different than me, but I have times that I'm getting up and I'm trying to pray and I cannot keep a straight thought to save my life. My mind is all over the map. I'm thinking about lunch plans and afternoon meetings and I'm thinking about I gotta do this and I start to pray and I'm like seven things need to pop up on my to-do list. And then I get in this internal battle of do I write it down or do I stay in prayer and I battle that out and finally I just write it down because I can't stay in prayer and I'm just back and forth and sometimes it is so hard for me to just keep a clear train of thought. And here's what I do when that comes. I just stop what I'm doing and say, God, let me just begin with gratefulness today. God, thank you for my salvation. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my girls. Thank you for our health. 
Thank you that there's a roof over our head. Thank you that you've allowed us to be able to be in an incredible community of believers here. Thank you, God, for the education you've provided. Thank you for the fact that I'm sitting in an air-conditioned or a heated home right now. Thank you for the fact that I get a chance to live out my dreams. Thank you for the fact that I get to share hope with those that are around me. Thank you for my family. Thank you for extended friends. Thank you. I, I mean, it's just like the more you begin to think, all of a sudden you find yourself wrapped up in 20, 30, 40 minutes or more of nothing but gratefulness. And whenever you've expressed that, it's amazing how clear your, your prayer life can become right afterwards. Thank God for his generosity and grace. Second on that would be, don't allow comparisons to define your view of fairness. Don't allow comparisons to define your view of fairness. The grumbler can't keep their eyes off of others who seem to be more fortunate. We recognize it, it doesn't matter what point of life you're in, there's always going to be somebody that seems like they've been blessed a little bit more, somebody who seems like they're a little bit happier, somebody who seems like life has just been kinder to them at different points. Today, I've, I've been reminded at two points today of how unbelievably grateful I am. This morning before the first service, I got word that a good friend of ours passed away unexpectedly this morning. And I started thinking about that family today. I started thinking about what they're walking through today. This afternoon, I've been reminded again of some people who have gone through incredibly difficult moments. And I'm reminded again of the fact that there are people around the world who would trade places with me in a split second. Why would I grumble and complain after I've been so blessed by God? Here's a third piece. Remember that God rewards faithfulness. You can't tell where you stand with God by looking at those that are around you. God has a way of doing things different than what we would originally think. This is a parable that teaches equality of faithfulness, not necessarily opportunity, or production. Did you know we have equal opportunity to be faithful before God? It doesn't matter what you're facing right now. You can walk faithfully if you're a child of God. Equal opportunity in faithfulness. So if your mind is still reeling a little bit from the parable, I want you to consider this as we close. God is just. And that is, in this story, no one is under paid every single one received an amazing wage for that day second god is generous everyone is blessed in that story i know sometimes it's hard but it's hard because of comparison so here's the good news think of it like this the master the landowner is still in the marketplace right now and he's looking for people to continue to work the fields Today, you might be at a place where you're thinking, I'm in the third quarter of my life or the fourth quarter of my life, or maybe you're thinking, I'm in overtime right now. I don't even know if there's time enough for me to work the fields. There is. If there's breath in your body right there, not only can God save and redeem your life, 
but God gives us opportunity to work in the fields. He says the fields are white for harvest. If you're ready, there's a field that is ready for you. So today as we close out this service in communion, I want to encourage you to take a few moments and I want you to think about where God found you and what God has done for you. Don't think about everybody else. Their story, their walk, that's their story. That's their walk. I want you to think about where did God find you? What was life like prior to salvation? And think of what he has done on your behalf. I want you to take a few moments right now in prayer. Go to God and think through those things for just a moment.